Okay, so we want to welcome those who are joining us online. We've been going through the book of Romans. And uh, however, this week and next week, we're going to take a pause. And I want to tell the Christmas story. That'll be this Sunday and next Sunday. Now, you might kind of say, oh, I've kind of heard that every year, all my life. But I want to tell the story from the beginning to the end, okay? Obviously, leaving quite a few details out. Because I find this is what really one of the most beautiful and truth-filled stories in the Bible. And I feel like often in the busyness of Christmas, we kind of get a snatch. Oh, yeah, there's the, there's the wise men. Or, oh, yeah, there's the shepherds. Or, you know, we get bits and pieces. But there's something beautiful about just kind of looking at it in its whole picture. And that's really what I want to do. And by the way, the scriptures are full of beautiful stories. Some of my favorites are uh, the Book of Ruth. Um, I enjoy uh, Joseph, the story of Joseph, because it expands over years and years. And, and the, actually, I like the stories that kind of that take place over a period of time. And uh, this story, the Christmas story, stretches over a period of centuries and covers a number of the books of the Bible. And it's amazing how it all comes together. Actually, there's two events that the scriptures talk about that are preceded with years, really centuries of anticipation. One is the first coming of Jesus. And then, you know, Brianna kind of referred uh, to the, uh, the second one is the second coming of Jesus. And by the way, we're still watching in anticipation for that one, aren't we? So I want to kind of tell the story. I'm going to do it in a story format. Don't worry, I'm going to be using the scriptures. But we're just going to kind of be jumping from, like I said, from, really from Genesis, you know, all the way to Luke, you know. And, uh, and I think we're going to find that this is a most beautiful story for a lot of reasons. But it's a story of God showing his amazing love. And compassion on a broken and faithless people. So our story starts at the very beginning. Okay? All the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And really, you can't appreciate this story until you kind of go back there. God makes the world. He makes man and woman, right? He places them in what's called the Garden of Eden. In Greek, that's kind of paradise. It's a world of paradise. It's a beautiful world that, they are, that he places them in. You know, there's no sin. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's constant fellowship with God. There's no pain. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. You might be saying, I'd like to go there. Well, actually... After God does away with this world, the following age will be like that, you know. However, we know the story that there is the fall of mankind that uh, at a certain point, man allowed himself to be deceived. And he was sent away from the garden, 
away from the paradise to a harsh, sinful, corrupted, self-centered world. Okay? And, and probably all these points we could probably talk a lot about. You know, why did this happen? How did this happen? All that. But I'm just kind of giving a, a, a quick story. And as soon as he dismisses them from the garden, he gives the first hint of a promise of a redeemer, of redemption. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this one's, you know, you have to kind of read it several times before you kind of catch it. But he's talking, God is talking to Satan. And he says in verse 15, And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Now, you might be saying, where's where's the Redeemer and all that? Basically, what he's saying here is that there's going to be, from the seed of a woman, from the human race, there's going to be someone who's going to come that's actually going to crush Satan on the head. Yeah, it's true that Satan may kind of bruise mankind on the hill. But in the end, through the human race, there's going to be one that's going to come that's going to crush him. Okay? First hint, and I admit, it's kind of like one of those things you could... It makes sense afterwards, but at the time, it didn't really make a lot of sense. But there are many other hints that came. Actually, there are over... 300 passages in the Old Testament that speak of Jesus and his coming. He's coming the very first time. Of course, there's a lot more about Jesus coming the second time. About how he's going to come as a savior. How he's going to come as a king. How he's going to come as a Messiah. And many of them are very specific prophetic words, prophecies. Where he'd be born, which family he'd be a part of. Actually, um, Josh McDowell, who's written a number of books just defending Christianity. Actually, kind of amazing story. Josh McDowell started off trying to disprove God and the Bible. But what happened, and this has happened many times with people, he became, he says, there's no way I can disprove it. It is so real. And he's written a number of books. But, He talked with a mathematician once, and I think there's another slide coming up here, and I'm going to read it. Okay, I'm going to read it in English first, and then we'll put up the the other Spanish, but let's go back to the English version first, minor. The mathematician calculated what would happen if you covered the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. By the way, has anyone ever driven through Texas? It goes on and on and on and on, does it? So two feet deep, silver dollars. Okay. Okay. Okay, so you pick up one of them, one of those silver dollars, and you throw it back. Okay. Then you ask another person to pick up a random silver dollar. The chance that two people, these two people picked up the same silver dollar is greater than the odds that only eight of the 300-plus prophecies about Christ 
would be fulfilled in the same person. Kind of amazing. You might have to kind of read that over again to kind of make sure you got it. Okay? So you got it? Okay, why don't we kind of, why don't we kind of, if you want, you can kind of take a picture of it before we kind of get to the English version. I mean, the Spanish version. And let's kind of do the Spanish version. Okay, you can kind of take a picture of that too, if you want. So obviously, God had this planned out a long time before Jesus came, right? He had it all planned out. And uh, we're not going to go through all 300 plus prophecies this morning. I do want to mention a few. Genesis 49, verse 10. Jacob is giving a blessing and even a prophetic word to each of his sons. Jacob later became Israel. And, uh, and when he comes to Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So right away, we know that it's going to be one of the descendants of Israel. And even more so, it's going to be from the tribe of Judah. Second Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse maybe 12. Um, God is talking with David. And in verse 12, he says... When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 16, he kind of goes on. He says, and your house and your kingdom through this descendant shall endure before me forever your throne shall be established forever. And then he goes on in other places to repeat that there's going to be a descendant of David. Now, Jewish scholars knew that. In fact, remember, uh, there are times when what would people call out to Jesus? They would say, Jesus, son of David. And that would make the religious leaders get really upset because they knew what he, what the crowd was saying. That, oh, They're saying he's the Messiah. He's the one. Okay. Now with time, especially the prophets that you can read about in the second half of the Old Testament began to speak even more clearly. Times were difficult. There's a moral decline. Kind of like today. You know, the longing for this Messiah only increased with time. And obviously we don't have time to go through. All the amazing things that were said about Jesus and his coming. But there were Jewish scholars that devoted their life to just studying these scriptures. And doing cross references. And trying to figure it out. And it was. And and their conclusions were pretty right on. You know. Uh, I just want to mention some of the main points. First of all. One of the things that comes across in a lot of these prophecies. Is that the Messiah or the king that would have this throne forever, he'd be born of a woman. He'd be born into the human race, even though he was God. 
And that's kind of amazing because if I was God, I don't know whether or not I'd want to kind of come as one of them. I think I'd probably want to kind of come as God, you know, mighty, be able to kind of say, this is the way it is. This is the way the salvation. But no, God had a different plan. He wanted to come to earth in the form of a human. Why was that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is where he could understand and sympathize with us, where he could relate to us. And that's exactly what he did. So there's a lot of details just about his birth. Sometimes I hear people kind of say, yeah, well, Christmas, why is there so much emphasis on his birth? Well, because the scriptures make a big deal out of it. Because it was kind of the beginning point of a new of a, of a new kingdom. Isaiah 7. <clears throat> Let's just kind of look at a couple of these. Isaiah 7, verse 14. And um, Isaiah wrote this about 600 years before Jesus. And um, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. By the way, what does Emmanuel mean? We should know because this is Emmanuel Fellowship. What, what does it mean? God is with us. And that was kind of his, that was what he was going to be called. God is going to be with us. Okay? Okay, Isaiah 9. Since we're kind of in the neighborhood, let's kind of look at a few more here. Verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. See, it's kind of emphasis, kind of, you know, child being born. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. See, this whole thing about the throne of David is mentioned over and over. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever more. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The book of Micah, another prophet. Chapter 5, verse 2. Pretty specific and again about the birth. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you... One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. This is about 500 years before Jesus. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up into the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at this time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Okay. So it had to be Bethlehem. He even tells us where this Messiah is going to be born. Actually remember when the wise men came from the east. And they came to Jerusalem and they kind of said. We've come here to worship the king of the Jews. Where is he? We, we've seen his star and we know he's. He's born somewhere around here. And Herod, very paranoid, kind of got the Jewish scholars together and said, So this Messiah, where is he supposed to be born? And they quote this verse. Oh, Bethlehem. Now, 
kind of amazing because Bethlehem wasn't what you called a city of destination back then. It was a poor town. You know, actually, it was um, it was small. It says here it's it's too little to even be considered among the clans of Judah. Actually, it's located about five miles from Jerusalem back then. Today, Jerusalem's kind of bigger than that, you know. But anyway, it was insignificant. And it was actually the place, we've talked about this in previous uh, Christmases, it was the place where the lambs were raised for the temple sacrifice. Because, because the temple, the whole temple system required just tons and tons of lambs, you know. And so, uh, you know, to transport it a long distance. So Bethlehem became sort of the place. And my understanding, it was, it was kind of a smelly place because there's lots of lambs. It's kind of a livestock type, you know, area. You know, kind of like I think Greeley used to be, you know, back years ago. Maybe still is. I don't know. But it was, it was a place that no one really wanted to be from. But amazingly, God decided that's where I want my... That's where I want my king, my Messiah to be born. It's even more than that. Because if you kind of go back to chapter 4 in Micah. We don't have a slide for this. But it refers to Migdal Eder. And I'm not going to get into this. This is sort of like a side thing. But Migdal Eder was. It was literally. It means the tower of the flock. And that's the place where it was supposed to be the best place for lambs and for sheep to be born. And there's a big tower there. And there was birthing caves there. We'll kind of get, jump back to this next week. In part two of the Christmas story. So anyway, he was, he was going to be born of a woman. He was going to be, you know, he was going to kind of grow up as a baby. Everything just like us. Another thing that this King Messiah was going to do. He was going to establish a new covenant. Or a new way of doing things. A new way of relating with people. Uh, Jeremiah. <clears throat> and we're just kind of skipping around here. But I just want you to kind of get the feel of it. Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. It says. Behold days are coming declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days declared the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I'll be their God. And they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Then he goes on and talks about, you know, uh, in Jeremiah, that it's going to be this Messiah that's going to bring in this new covenant. But notice, it's going to be where God's going to put his heart. He put his law in our hearts. We can all get to know him. We don't have to go through someone else. We can, our sins are going to be forgiven. Ezekiel 36. There's another place. Talking about the same thing. Uh, Starting in verse maybe 25. 
It says, uh, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. He's actually going to put his heart inside of us. You know, now all this, we could kind of talk probably a message on every one of these. But I'm just trying to give the overview of the story. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David. Now, wait a minute. David had already died. What is he talking about? He's talking about the descendant of David, right? The one that's going to come. Will be king over them. And they will have one shepherd. So he's going to be a king. He's going to be a Messiah. He's going to be a shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statues and observe them. They will live on the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant. Uh, we kind of just jump down to verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in the midst of In their midst forever. My dwelling place also shall be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Okay, so he's going to establish a new covenant. But not only that. He's going to come for all the nations. Not just for the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people... At that time, by the time Jesus came, they thought of themselves, you know, all, a lot of nations, they have their own gods. And this is our God. You know, Jehovah's our God. He, and so when they would talk about the king, they would always talk about, oh, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And yes, he was going to be that. But it was going to be more than that. He was going to be king and Messiah for all the peoples of the world, for all the nations. We just saw that. Verse uh, um, Ezekiel 37, verse 20. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Or another one. By the way, I could probably give you 25 verses. No exaggeration, just on this. But Isaiah 49, verse 6 is one. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. Speaking of Jesus, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He's saying, this king's going to be so great that Israel's too small for that. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Okay, so, you know, we, we see that. We, we, we see that he's going to come as a shepherd. Isaiah forty eleven. It says, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and gather them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And of course, Micah, we've already kind of read that. Micah 5, verse 4, it says, And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the, in the, strength of the Lord. And there's many other places. In fact, 
One of the things that Jesus said when he came to earth, he says, I am the good shepherd. Right. And the way he describes that in Greek is, I am the shepherd. You know, like I'm the one that's been prophesied about for years and years. We know he's going to come as a king. We already saw that in Second Samuel 7. Let's just look at Zechariah. Zechariah 9. I'll just read it from here. Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah. Nuevi, Nuevi. Okay, right. Okay, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Talking about Jesus. He is just and endowed with salvation. He's bringing salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the file of a, of a donkey. And of course, where do we kind of see that being fulfilled literally? Is when what? Jesus kind of came in on, the, uh, on what we call Palm Sunday. But the point of the passage, he's a humble king. You know? He's not arrogant. He's not... He, he's, he, he's a different type of king. We also see that he's going to come as a savior or a redeemer. One who's going to bring salvation, forgive our sins. Whole chapter Isaiah 53 is devoted to this. So is Psalm 22. He's going to come as a deliverer. In other words, he's going to re- release prisoners from darkness, captives from sin. Uh, Isaiah 61. Now, you might kind of say, well, how do we know that these passages are about Jesus? Well, in this one in particular, after he reveals who he is and he's ministering, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And they ask him to share something. He shares these three verses. And then he says, today, this passage has been fulfilled. Meaning, this is about me. So what does he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Spirit has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. One of the things, one of the reasons Jesus came is because God saw that the world was afflicted, they were mourning, they were they were prisoners, so to speak, and he came to set us free. Now, you might say, but there's still a lot of people who are not who are suffering. Yes, there are. And that's one of the reasons why he's coming a second time. He's actually going to set up the kingdom in its fullness. But the first time he introduces us in a personal way that we can be, we can be given that, uh, how does it say, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. I, I, I love studying the Old Testament. One of the reasons is I love to see the many ways that it all points to Jesus. So much of it. But if we had time, we could also see there are passages 
that refer to this king, this shepherd, this Messiah. He's going to come as a high priest. Actually, the high priest. He's going to be the prophet. He's going to be the light of the world. He's going to be mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, eternal father, incredible friend. It just goes on and on. So we probably hit maybe about 10 verses out of over 300. But I think you get the idea, right? All through the Old Testament, God's speaking to the prophets. I'm sending you a Messiah, a shepherd, a king, a high priest. He's going to be the Messiah. And so the people kept waiting and waiting. The prophets kept speaking and speaking so much. Because there's a, this world was a broken people yearning for their savior, for their king, for the Messiah. And then 400 years of silence. The prophets stopped speaking. 400 years. By the way, that's a long time. You kind of go back four, 400 now. You kind of go back to about what? 1623. You know, Europeans are just kind of coming to this continent. That's a long time for there to be silence. You know, it was a testing time. And you know what? Most of the, you know, the scholars kept studying about the prophetic words. The common people kept saying, one day Messiah is coming. The king's going to be coming. Then, after 400 years, at the right time, at the appointed time, it says, God begins to bring this all about. Galatians 4. You might not think of this as part of the Christmas story, but I I think it is. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So God begins to move. How does he do this? This is when the story gets really interesting because he does so through simple, normal, ordinary people like you and me. Like Miguel. Like Walter. Like Carla. You know, Ordinary people. He doesn't go to the rich and famous. He doesn't go to the most influential by the world's standards. He begins to kind of tie together this whole story into the arrival of the promised one. Into his plan that he's been planning for centuries and centuries and giving hints. And he uses ordinary people like you and me. By the way, remember in the worship time, we talked about how there is another coming with other prophetic words and hints of what this second return is going to be like. And you know what? How is he going to tie all that together? By doing the same thing. He's going to be using ordinary, simple people like us. Let me just kind of introduce you to some of the main people 
We'll talk more about him next. There's Zacharias. They say he was advanced in years. I'm not sure what that meant. Some of you may kind of feel like if you're 30 or 40, you're advanced in years. You know, some who maybe my age, I feel, no, I don't want to be there yet. But I guess it's all relative. But he was advanced in years. He'd worked hard all his life. Nothing really significant had happened in his life. He and his wife couldn't even have children. He didn't have children. didn't have grandchildren. And actually, when God spoke to him, he had a hard time believing. His faith was kind of weak. Maybe like some of us. Then there's his wife. It was also said of her that she was advanced in years. Actually, so advanced that the time for her to be able to bear children had long passed. You know, we also know that she felt disgraced, you know, because she didn't have children in front of her friends and families. Then there's Mary, a young girl, most definitely a teenager, you know, uh, very little experience in life. Didn't know much except that she loved God. But even though she loved God, it wasn't like she was a great theologian. She never had, she never really had that type of training. But she had simple faith in God. Then there's Joseph, a carpenter. He didn't really have a lot of status in life. Actually, a lot of the carpenters in Nazareth at this time were working on a construction project in the next town. Scholars think he may have been one of those. But he was poor, very poor. We know that as the story develops. Then there's some others. There are shepherds in Bethlehem, you know, that little town that didn't mean much. Well, the shepherds were at the bottom of the totem pole of this very small town. God decides to kind of weave their lives into it. Oh, yeah. And then there's a there's an old man named Simeon in the temple, you know, and then there's an old woman there, too. We are told her age, 84 years old and. People thought both of these two were a little bit kind of crazy, out of touch with the world. But God decides to kind of weave them into the story. Do you kind of get the picture? God uses simple people. Now, they're all righteous or they love God. That's probably one thing you could say about all of them. They desire God. They certainly weren't perfect. But they wanted more of him. And he decided, that's who I'm going to use. That's who I'm going to use. I mean, can you imagine that? That God's been speaking for centuries and centuries. The whole people have been kind of looking to this. And you get chosen to be part of the story. Who am I? But did you also know that for centuries and centuries, we've been talking about Jesus coming back. It's starting to kind of come together. And God's using kind of people like you and me to be involved in that story too. God loves to weave into his story ordinary, simple people into his master plan, his eternal purposes. And I think we have a, uh, another slide there, Minor. You know, um, you know, uh, um, you know uh, that's what he does. He did it then and he does it now. As we said at the beginning, this is a most beautiful story for many reasons. 
One is that it's the story of God having amazing love and compassion on a broken and faithless people. He loves them so much that he desires to weave them into his story. I want to ask you something. I want you to do something this Christmas. Don't just enjoy the Christmas story as a beautiful story, you know, has a little, you know, uh, baby Jesus in it and all that. Yeah, that's part of the story. But think of it as as the part of the story that's centuries old. And, uh, And by the way, he's doing part two, which is his second return. And he wants you and I to be a part of that story. Now, I, I kind of like to use the word story because it is a story. And God is a master. He's the creator of all stories. Right? In fact, sometimes someone new comes to church. I get together with them. And I'll kind of say, so tell me, what's your story? You know? And they kind of talk about your story. And sometimes that helps people kind of see, wait a minute. I have a story that's being written by God. All of us do. Now, we can kind of rebel against that story. Or we can submit to it and be part of it. And then, this is only God can do this. He takes your story and my story and all of our stories together. And he weaves them together. And then he starts weaving them into his eternal purposes. And that's what he's doing. So... Especially those who are younger, you know, younger generations. I want to encourage you, don't waste your life. Begin now. Because the story we're talking about, the Christmas story, involved a lot of younger ones. You might kind of feel like, I'm advanced in age. Actually, that's kind of a polite way of kind of saying we're getting older. But I kind of like it, you know. But if you're advanced at age, God wants to use you. He wants to weave you into his bigger picture as well. And actually, for every of us, all of us in between, he wants to do the same thing. Will you let God take your life, take your story, and do something beautiful? That may mean that you have to be willing to lay aside your dreams and your desires. But I can guarantee you, as you... As he begins to weave your story into the bigger story, it's going to be more amazing and more incredible than you could ever imagine. So in conclusion, this kind of review. God spent centuries preparing the way for the great visitation. God visiting earth. And then he gave lots of hints prophecies along the way and then in the fullness of time as it says in Galatians 4 God came to earth Emmanuel God is with us and I think we just want to remember that part two of this story is taking place now getting ready for his second return and God wants us to be a part of it you know in part one Back in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, in Judea, in the time of Jesus, most people in Israel were not even aware of what God was doing. 
It wasn't because they didn't know about he was supposed to come. And I wonder if this second time, there's going to be a lot of people just unaware of what's really happening. We don't want to be like that, do we? We want to be included. So next week, we're going to kind of see how God takes the lives and the stories of these ordinary people. And, well, you probably know the story, but we're going to finish telling it next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great story called the Christmas story. That you spent centuries and centuries and centuries planning it and giving hints. And then in the fullness of time, you brought it about. Lord, let us see the beauty of how you include ordinary people in your story. And Lord, let that be an encouragement to all of us who are anticipating that second return of Jesus. That you are weaving our story, our lives into what you're doing. Lord, open our eyes to these things. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay. One thing I'd like to encourage you to do is read through Matthew 1, Luke 1, Luke 2, several times this week. And just ask the Lord to start speaking to you. There's a lot of things I think he wants to speak to us. In this very simple, we know it almost by heart, but I think we start taking the time to look at it. We see this is really, it's a beautiful story. Amen.